0: But right now, let's go back to this whole topic of coexisting. And to do that, I want to look at 1 Corinthians. We finally made it to 1 Corinthians. And um, we're going to begin reading in in, uh, chapter 1 and verse 10 and read to the end of the chapter. Paul writes... I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. And what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. Now, I did baptize also the household of Stephanas. But beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the very power of God. You know what? I think I'm going to stop right there. All right, let's go to the Lord, and then we'll dive in uh, to our topic this morning. Lord Jesus, Your truth is clear. But Your truth lands in hearts and upon minds that are very clearly set in a different direction. And Father, You know us this morning and You know the reality of that better than we do. So Jesus, would You come by Your Spirit to bring truth to bear in our hearts and souls, to bring repentance and to bring faith. Father, I can give arguments from Your Word of the truthfulness of Your Gospel, but I can't even believe it myself without Your mercy and grace. And so would You come down, and would You dwell among us this morning by Your Spirit Because you promised to do so, and we know your character is faithfulness, and it's faithful. So speak to us this morning, O God. Resolve the skepticism and the doubt. Convince us, maybe some of us again, and maybe some of us for the first time, that Jesus is truth and wisdom and power. Oh God, your church needs you, your world needs you, so would you come? Give us a taste of Jesus, we pray in His name. Amen. The streets of Ferguson, Missouri look like a picture from the Gaza Strip. (laughs) Police dressed in military garb using military-issued weapons. The line was drawn, tear gas, many pastors, thinkers, just common people took to Twitter and Facebook writing blogs, and in the church we have seen argument and division. I would say that the atmosphere is tense. I think this morning I could absolutely create a riot in this place. If I wanted to. And the world looks at the church. Now now listen to me. I'm not judging this. I'm just saying what is. Hear me. I'm just saying this is the climate. And the world looks at the church and says, there you go again. There you go again. You're always dividing. Nothing new. You're always just contentious. You remember the, the Barna... Research that we looked at last week that Barna produced in a book in 2011 called "You Lost Me: um, How Why Young Christians Are Leaving the Church and Rethinking Church." You see, the very heart of all of that, the the reason young people are leaving the church primarily is because the church is not connected with the culture. In fact, we know what the church is against, but the way the church communicates what the church is against is not loving and is very divisive. And so I can get that about anywhere, so I don't need the church. And friends, Paul understands because Corinth was the same way. And I'm talking about the church in Corinth. Uh, Paul writes, and the very first thing that he addresses, and it's very interesting because I think the very first thing that is addressed in our culture are the sexual issues, but that doesn't come until later on, chapters maybe 5, 6, or 7. You know, we might talk about, well, let's talk about the definition of marriage and divorce and, and the rules around that, but Paul waits till later. The very first thing that he begins to talk about is division in the church. Unbelievable. And why do you think that is? Because even then, the culture would look at the church and say, you guys are not what you preach. So why listen to your message? I can get that anywhere. Believe me. Well, how do we respond? Three things really quick, and then we're going to get to the actual sermon. (laughs) First, we've got to admit that Christianity is not the only belief that divides. You know, how do we respond to this question? You Christians, y'all are fighting. Everybody's fighting. There is not a group on the planet, there's no family, there's no community, there's no team, there's no office. There is not a community on this planet that is not divided at times and is not fighting at some point. Why? Because people fight. And so the question, the first thing that we've got to say is and kind of push back to the culture is say, listen, is it, do we as Christians fight because our message is flawed or because we are flawed? And I think the gospel reminds us that we must say, hey, we're flawed, you're right, we are. The church needs to say that. Because the very first thing Paul does is say, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. And so we've got to admit that Christianity is not the only belief that divides. Secondly, truth only divides in a world of falsehood. Last week I used the illustration um, about my four-year-old grandson if my four-year-old grandson wants to run in the street, um, is, it, is it good for me, is it truthful for me to say don't do that and to stop them? I think we would all agree, yes. If there's oncoming traffic, do not let your four-year-old grandson run in the street. Well, that will probably cause division and will probably cause dissonance in our relationship, at least for a moment. Why? Why? Because there is falsehood at work in the planet. <laughs> and and this falsehood is what is going to satisfy me most in the mind of my little four-year-old grandson is running into that street to get that ball at this moment. He doesn't understand the repercussions. You see... Truth will always divide, but it will only divide in a world of falsehood. That is why we say, we we talked about, I think, um, Rick prayed it this morning, one day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, what? That Jesus Christ is Lord. That is a truth statement that brings peace when everybody believes it. And so one day, someday, in a far and distant land, we will know peace because we will all finally stop wrestling against the truth and we will say yes to Jesus. And then thirdly, as we saw last week, division doesn't necessarily equate to evil or sin. Um, Division can be very good. Now, I would would agree with many in the world that would say, well, you Christians have not been so good in the way you brought dissonance and division among us. Because we feel judged, not loved. And right. Remember last week, I said, the most loving thing that I can do with my four-year-old grandson is say, no, I don't care. It doesn't matter if he's kicking and screaming and hitting me and saying, I want to run in the street. The most loving thing in that moment, would anybody argue against that? The most loving thing I can do in that moment is not let him go. Why? Because he will die. And so, when there's division, when there's dissonance, it's not, you can't just equate it to evil and sin. Uh, You've got to say that, hey, if I love somebody, I'm going to tell them the truth. So, So, here we go. So, what do we do? As the church, where does the focus really need to be? If you said, okay, there's going to be division in every place, and division doesn't necessarily equate to evil, and, and all you know, the three things I just said. So, where does our focus need to be as Christians? It needs to be in rehearing the gospel. How are we going to be a church that is unified, but how are we going to be a church that can respond to the world and say, okay, here. Listen to our message and and, and therefore you will understand why there there are arguments at times because we hold the truth so high. And we admit that we don't do that very well much of the time. What Paul does here is fascinating. He, He begins to tell the church, hear me, the church, the gospel. The very people that are already converted and saved, he gives them the gospel again. Why is that? Number one, Christian truth is the word of the cross. I changed that point. It's probably not what you're reading up there. Christian truth, and really we can just say truth is, end quote, the word of the cross. Now, this is interesting. Because... What Paul is doing is he is appealing to what he calls the word of the cross to you know, stop the disunity in the church. Now, why does he do that? Well, I contend that he does it because the word of the cross is the very essence of truth. It is truth. And let me just show you the power in that the message of the word of the cross, which is really the word of sacrifice, the word of giving yourself away. All right, did did y'all see this image? Put the image of the guys. uh, There we go. These guys are in Ferguson, and they are guarding a business. Now, you can kind of tell by the look on their faces, they are determined. You're not looting this place. And so when I saw that picture, and I hope the same thing's happening to you, as you see that picture, please understand, they're not getting paid to do that. They're doing that because they're saying, this is my neighborhood and it's not going down like that. And we look at that and we say, ah, that has power. But then we go to the next picture of someone actually looting and running away with, looks like some bottles of wine. And we look at that and we go, oh, man, bad. Alright? So why does the first one give us warm fuzzies and this one not? Because can't we admit that it's a universal truth that sacrificing yourself for someone else is a good and virtuous thing? And selfish acts like looting are not. Now, I'm not saying you can't understand why someone would loot. I'm not saying you can't, you know. I'm just saying, can't we say that one is better than the other? Why is that? I contend it's because of the word of the cross. We value sacrificial acts more than selfish acts because all truth is connected to the one mega truth of the universe, and that is Christ gave his life. For sinners like you and me. That is the essence and the backdrop and the foundation of every truth there is. God looked at His people who rebelled against Him and came down and suffered injustice for them. He is the only righteous man to ever walk the face of this earth. He's the only one that obeyed the law of God from his heart, mind, soul, and strength. He is the only one that fulfilled the law, and He did it for you and me, not for Himself, because He was the essence of the law already in glory before He came down. He did not need to come down to prove anything. He came down to accomplish something for you and me, and that is right standing before the Father. And then he goes to the cross willingly, he was convicted, he was tried, wrongly convicted, wrongly tried, wrongly um, um, found guilty, and then sent to a cross to be nailed to it, and like a lamb is led to the like a lamb being led to the slaughter is silent, that was Jesus he didn 't stand up for his rights he didn 't say this is an injustice. But what He said in His heart and mind was, I'm obeying my Father and I know my people will experience injustice and this is for them because they're not going to do it well, so I've got to do it perfectly. And then He went to the cross and He died for His people. That is how God responded to His enemies. That is how God responded to His world. And dear friends, that must be how you and I respond because it's the only power that is really virtuous. It's laying your power down for the sake of someone else. That truth is the only truth. The word of the cross. But notice, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Now, why is it the power? I mean, you know, how is it the power? And, and how does this power apply to our everyday lives? That's probably a better way to say it. How does this power apply to our everyday lives? Because look at what Paul is doing here. He starts the book of his letter to the Corinthians, and he gets about, He starts talking about divisions almost immediately, but then he gets to about verses 16 and 17, and he launches into this whole thing on the gospel, the word of the cross and what Christ has done and all this, all the way to the end of chapter 2, and then he gets to chapter 3 and he goes right back to division. Again. And so what he's saying is, church, you've got to rehear the gospel and you've got to live in light of it. And then he goes back to divisions, and then he starts talking about uh, idolatry and, and marriage and, and remarriage and divorce and sex and um, drunkenness and gluttony, gluttony at the Lord's Supper, and church, and how to use your spiritual gifts and all these other things. But what he is saying is this this gospel is the answer to everything that ails you. You have to start here because this is the essence of Christian truth. Sin, the essence of of sin is I will do what's good and right for me, me for me. The essence of righteousness is I will do what's good for you, my life for yours. Why? Because that was God's answer to the world. It's why Jesus said in Mark 10, whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Why? See, He goes back. Because even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and has given His life a ransom for many. How do we deal as a church body with what's going on in Ferguson? I want you to know, black friends... It is practically impossible for a white person to really get what's going on in Ferguson and why you are so outraged. Brian LaRitz, uh, lead pastor at Fellowship Memphis, said something, I think, or wrote something in his blog that I thought was wonderful. He, he equated it to marriage. He said, You know what? I mean, basically, this is what he was saying. This is how I read it, at least. I don't get my wife, and my wife doesn't get me. But guess what we have to do because we're committed to something above each other? We have to listen to each other and try to understand and at the end of the day, love. That's the church. (laughs) That's the church. You see, to the point that we we say, oh, but, here's my argument. We kill each other. But to the point we come in and we say, okay, you really don't get this, do you? You really, you know, both sides. We come in and we listen to each other because... The the narrative of God giving His life for a people that don't understand at all must govern right where we are. Does that make sense? You see, the word of the cross is power for marriage. Why? Because Paul in chapter 5 says, "...be mutually submissive to one another." And then the very next verse he says, "...husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church." Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Why? I mean, that's offensive in this world today, submit and headship and all this stuff. But notice, headship is dying. Submission is dying. He's telling the same thing. Die to yourself. Why? Because God died for you. This is the narrative. The power of the word of the cross to to address incidences like Ferguson and, and our marriage debates and everything else we do and anything in the church must govern because it's the only truth we have. It is truth, the word of the cross, and that's why Paul holds it high. Secondly, the wisdom of the cross makes the wisdom of this world folly. In verses 20 and 25 we read, Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? That's a good question. And I want you to know that most of us have answered that question and say, no, the wisdom of God is not greater than the wisdom of the world. The wisdom of the world is greater than the wisdom of God. And let me just prove my point. How much time do you spend listening to God in His Word? Oh, there's the guilt. There we go. How many hours do you spend there? And how many hours do you spend on Facebook, Twitter, cable TV? Right. And that's not because you really believe. As a Christian, you're saying, I know God's truth. Yeah, right. Well, I think we need to begin to live like it, okay? Let me just give an illustration here. How the wisdom, or or how the, how God has made foolish the wisdom of this world by really allowing us to live by the wisdom of this world when we want to. Um, I think first we can look at Jeremiah 8, verses 8-12 through 12, and see that this is nothing new, that God's people were dealing with, you know, dealing with God just like we are today. Uh, when Jeremiah wrote this, l- listen to this indictment. How can you say we are wise and the law of the Lord is with us? But behold, the lying pen of the scribes has made it into a lie. The wise men shall be put to shame, they shall be dismayed and taken. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord, so that wisdom so, so what wisdom is in them? Do you see what's going on here? Basically the culture said, We demand this. And the scribes say, Okay, hold on a second. We can alter the word of God. Okay, here is this better? Okay, now you go live the way you want to, because your wisdom is greater. And and Jeremiah is saying, Really? Is that wisdom? But is that not what we're doing today? Uh, let me just give you an example out of you know, the whole sexual revolution, and I bet there are people in here that have never heard that term, because it happened in the 1960s, and most of you were not alive in the 1960s, and yet it really did happen. There was a cultural shift in the 60s, and it probably started in the 30s, and uh, it's been around since the fall, since Genesis 3, but, um, but let's just make it a little bit more simplistic and say in saying the 60s, uh, we as a people demanded our rights for sexual freedom we can do what we want to do with our bodies and many churches you know stood up against it but there were many more churches that said you know what i think that you know started begin to change the word of god the scribes went to their little office and started changing the word of god and saying oh all these old law they're just that was just culturally relevant to them god didn't really say that's exactly what's going on here and what happens, the people get to a point where they don't even blush anymore. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No. They were not at all ashamed. They did not even know how to blush. Do you realize that's where we are in the sexual revolution? We can't even blush at anything anymore. I can use illustrations and sermons today that could have never been used, you know, 30 years ago. Why is that? Because we don't, we don't blush anymore. And really, the church and any sermon I'm going to preach is going to be way behind of where people actually live. It's a sad indictment. Well, what Jeremiah shows us is that the judgment of God is not always in keeping. It is not always in keeping something we want from us, but giving us exactly what we want. It's the whole Romans one thing. We went through, you know, the book of Romans. God gave them over to the desires of their flesh. That's God's judgment, friends. We won no freedom in 1960s or the 1970s or the 1980s or in 2014. We have not won any freedoms. God has just said, "Okay, I'll get you want it. You think your wisdom is better than mine? Well, here you go." You see, here's the reality. We have demanded freedom to do whatever we want to do with our bodies, but the statistical impact is clear. We are far worse, and we are destroying our society not so slowly. The sexual revolution is an absolute plague on our world. Caitlin Flanagan wrote in a Time Magazine piece uh, this article entitled, Is There Hope for the American Marriage? And listen what she says. In the midst of the sexual revolution where everybody's, we don't need marriage, we'll just have sex. This is what she said. There is no other single force causing as much measurable hardship and human misery in this country as the collapse of marriage. Now, she is not a Christian. She's just a sociologist looking at the statistics. It hurts children, it reduces mothers' financial security, and it has landed with particular devastation on those who can bear at the least the nation's underclass. Then she writes this in prophetic style. The current generation of children, the one watching commitments between adults snap like dry twigs and observing parents who simply can't be bothered to marry each other and who hence drift in and out of their children's lives, that's the generation who will be taking care of us when we are old. Or will they? (laughs) That's really what she's saying. Why do we think... They're going to take care of us when we've shown them that there's no need for commitment. What really matters most is the virtue of you and not me. So you can't possess personal sexual freedom and it not infringe on someone else's freedom. You can't. It is impossible. It's it completely irrational to think you can. Let's just take sexually transmitted diseases. What has sexual freedom, how has that cost our country? $16 billion a year are being spent to address and to treat sexually transmitted diseases. 19.7 million infections diagnosed annually. What is the cost of single motherhood? And father absence. I looked it up. In 2006, this is the most recent statistic I could find. In 2006, it was costing this country $99 billion. Oh, but I'm just going to, as long as I'm not hurting anybody. Do you know what we could do with that $99 billion or that $16 billion? Do you know what, a, what shambles the church in Memphis, is, I mean, excuse me, the, the schools in Memphis and, and, you know, healthcare and all these other things are? It is absolutely foolish to say that my freedom doesn't hurt anybody else. I was talking to a counselor this week about uh, who specializes in sex addiction. And you know, I told him. I said, you know, in the last couple of years, I have I, I, I've, I've learned more about sex addiction than I, I have in you know 21 years of ministry before that. And he said, um, he said there has been a spike in the last year to two. And he said this. He said it's because the millennial generation is the generation when they were in the seventh and eighth, ninth grade, internet porn was just unleashed on them. And now the millennials are getting married. Millennial people are getting married, and it's beginning to come out. And he said this these, oh, I hope it's not prophetic, but I, I fear it is. We are just now seeing the tip of the iceberg of the effect. You see what we did as a culture is we said, we know better than God. He's irrelevant. Come on, he's just not with the times. And so we're going to do what we want to do. And guess what? We are killing ourselves. <laughs> we are more lonely and disconnected from each other than we ever have been mary everstadt wrote a book entitled Adam and Eve After the Pill. I, I, I missed this book somehow. It it's, it's came out four or five years ago, I think, and I don't know how I missed it, but I was just Googling this topic, and, and this came up, and, it's, and I downloaded the book because it, it's so good. Listen to what her observation. Um, in the post-revolutionary world, um, the sexual revolutionary world, sex is easier had than ever before, but the opposite appears to be true for Romance. This is perhaps the central enigma that modern men and women are up against. Romantic want in a time of sexual plenty. Brilliant. Perhaps some of the modern misery of which so many women today so authentically speak is springing not from a sexual desert, but from a sexual flood. A torrent of poisonous imagery beginning now for many in childhood that has engulfed women and men only to beach them eventually somewhere alone and apart far from the reach of one another. Wow. Our culture is liberated and yet we are more enslaved than we've ever been. Why? Because we said, God, your wisdom is foolish. This whole one man, one woman thing. This whole wait for marriage thing. We'll do it our way. And dear friends, we're paying for it. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Is it not obvious that the foolishness of God is wiser than us, in this, at least in this very one minute issue, when there in the world a sea of other issues? And then thirdly and finally, We've got to see that the word of the cross is Jesus. Um, I've stated this point two different ways in the first two sermons, and I'm probably going to state it a different way every single sermon. You'll understand in a minute. The word of the cross is Jesus. Amy Catherine, our youngest daughter, is presently applying for master's programs in psychology. Um, she's looking around the country, and you know, and, and when she started doing that, I said, Honey, you don't have to do that. Just apply to the University of Memphis. I mean, they've got a great program right here. You can live near us, and, uh, I mean, problem solved. Why are you looking all over the country? And she said, Dad, it's not because I want to get away from you and Mom. I said, oh, Yeah, right. Okay, whatever. And then she said this. Dad, I'm looking for a professor who is who is um, leading a lab, doing the specific research that I'm interested in, that I need to be trained in, in order to counsel those that I, I feel called to counsel. And so she is going to be, no doubt, she's got to apply and be accepted. She has to have the credentials. But not only is she going to be interviewed, but she's going to be interviewing professors and programs. Why? It it, it hit me. Truth is relational in the sense that we will not believe whom we do not trust. And so a huge part of her decision of where she's going to spend the next two to three years, you know, every moment of her waking life trying to get a master's degree and then maybe a Ph.D., is she's got to go somewhere and get under somebody that she trusts and admires and whose research is the truest of the true in the land. And what I saw from this is we never or we rarely only get truth from a textbook. We get truth from people. We shape each other in relationship not just by writing down our thoughts and handing it to each other. And why is that? Because we are made in the image of God who is relational and He is truth. And He is not trying to win your soul this morning by giving you a set of facts. He's trying to win your soul this morning by giving you the person of Jesus. Christianity is different from religion. I agree with the statement that religion causes um, much division and even has caused war, and I think it's causing war and stuff we're seeing um, in Iraq and in other parts of the world today. But hear me, Christianity is not a religion. A religion tells us how man can get to God. God is the passive player in the narrative. But Christianity tells us how God got to us. You see, God comes down the mountain, whereas in a Hindu analogy, it's us trying to find our way to the top, but in the Christian analogy, God ain't waiting at the top. He's come down in the flesh, and His name is Jesus. And that's the difference. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is no one righteous. No, not even one. You can't climb the mountain. But guess what? Just at the right time, in the midst of our sin, Christ died for the ungodly. Listen to what Paul does in um, verses, uh, let me go down, I didn't read them, verses uh, 26 and following. "...to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God." And listen to this. "...He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption." You see, it's not a set of facts that is your righteousness and sanctification and redemption and your wisdom. It is a person and his name is Jesus. This is how truth works. We get in relationship with Christ, and then we receive truth in all things as we walk with Him. It is discipleship 101 with Jesus. Be mentored by Jesus in living relationship. That's why this whole idea of the church it, it, it is so good. It, it, is, it is not just a talking head in the front that you don't know, and I go in the back, and you know my limo is waiting, and I'm gone. But I hope you get to know me. I want to get to know you. It's why we have a staff of people. It's why we have elders and leaders. It's why we have community groups. Because we're getting truth through one another as we get in relationship with Jesus. I love what Tim Keller said. He said, apologetics, which is just the arguing for the truth of the Bible, is the precursor for evangelism. It is not evangelism. We can give you facts all day, but the only purpose of that is to get you to a point where you, where you kind of throw down your arms and say, okay, all right, well, maybe you have a point, and then we say, here's Jesus, get to know Him. And so, Christian, if you are skeptical this morning, if you feel cut off from God, what you've done is you've looked at the facts against Christianity, you've listened to the arguments of the world, and you've let your heart drift off into faith there. And so come back, get your doubts answered, get your questions answered so that you can come back to Jesus and say, yes again, teach me, Lord Jesus. And if you've never been to that spot, that's where you need to be. Do the apologetics that you feel you need to do. Get the answers that you feel you need to get. Come talk to me, come talk to Chris, talk to your community group leaders, talk to your friends who are thinking people... But that ain't going to solve your issue. Jesus will solve your issues. So dear friends, may we come to Jesus this morning and be reconvinced as we re-hear this word of the cross. Amen. Lord Jesus, thank You that You are Alpha and Omega. You're the beginning and the end. There is no truth besides You, and yet all truth is rooted in You. And so may we understand that giving ourselves away is what You've called us to, and yet we can't unless we take in You, the One who has given Himself away for us. Lord God, would You work in our midst this morning. Would You show us that You're the One that understands us. You understand injustice better than anyone. (laughs) You went to the cross so that when we get to a point when we feel isolated and oppressed... And not understood in a marriage, at a workplace, in the country because of the color of our skin. You can be the one we go to. And so Jesus, may we go to you this morning. We thank you. We pray in your name. Amen.